Welcome to The Prosper Project, the show that helps entrepreneurs build brands that impact the world and the bottom line. We know that success doesn't come in a one-size-fits-all package. That's why we're bringing you adaptable marketing strategies along with valuable insights from inspiring changemakers, firebrands, and visionaries. I'm Lorraine Sugart, founder of the disruptive brand agency, Prosper for Purpose. Now for this week's episode. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with Sharon Rowe, social entrepreneur, artist, and speaker. Sharon is the founder of EcoBags and author of one of my favorite books about business, The Magic of Tiny Business. Sharon's been featured in Time, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, Entrepreneur, Forbes, and numerous podcasts. Sharon lives with her husband, Blake, a pianist and teacher in the Hudson Valley area of New York. Her children, Julianne and Eva, reside happily in New Zealand. Hi, Sharon. I'm just so honored and excited to have you here with me today to talk about the magic of small business and about the evolution of eco bags and all those great things. Well, I'm just thrilled to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So let's start at the very beginning. What inspired you to start eco bags? Well, it wasn't one thing. It was a multiple of things, as always, right? I was really disturbed by all the plastic bags floating around my neighborhood, you know, getting stuck in trees in the gutter. I was perturbed by all the bags that I would get, you know, that were given to me at the store. And by the time I got home, they were almost breaking apart. So they never even had a second life, you know, as a garbage bag or anything like that. And so I just saw that as a great big problem that needed to be solved. And on top of that, you know, I needed to generate an income for my family. And I had just had a baby and I didn't really want to do the nine to five schlep out of the house. So if you put all those things into the mixing bowl and stir it around, I came up with, oh, I'll start a bag company. (laughs) I'll start what I called a reusable bag company. Never occurred to me, you know, that no one else was doing it. I just thought, hmm, this is a good idea. Maybe I can you know, create something where I solve a problem, make a living, and am in charge of my own time. Amazing, because, you know, so many advisors now talk to people who want to be entrepreneurs and say, you know, either pursue your passion or address an issue that really makes you angry, right? And so Mm. it's interesting, you were doing a little bit of both, it sounds like. Yeah, and I was ahead of my time at that point, because when I started, I started a business. The word entrepreneur wasn't even in my framework. I was mad about all the single-use plastics, but I was inspired by clean air and clean water and the idea that that should be for everybody. And that goes in part to, you know, Pete Seeger, because I live along the Hudson River. And I knew that I wanted to be in charge of my own time. I mean, this is before there was flex time or and it actually it was before the internet was really a big deal. So, right. you know, it was a time of the fax machine, you know, it was back in the dinosaur oh, age. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I just thought, hey, I'll give this a try. Absolutely. And, you know, let's be clear, you started your business in 1989. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were some things that probably worked in your favor, but there were a lot of challenges too. So 
can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you faced in those early years, especially when reusable bags weren't even a popular concept in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. So that would probably be the biggest thing. Reusable bags weren't even a concept. Awareness of single-use plastics in our environment wasn't even on anybody's radar. Producing goods where you actually do no harm, what I mean by that is you make sure it's fair wage and fair labor. We always did that. That wasn't even on anybody's, you know, it just wasn't there. I created a brand for a market that didn't exist and then had to work really hard with showing up basically and talking to a lot of people because this is again pre-internet and let them know that this is actually a really big idea and this is really going to catch on and you just wait and see, you know? (laughs) And I did this with very little resources, I have to say too. You know, people always want to say, oh, what'd you start with? I I didn't have a whole lot of cash. So I just kept turning it into inventory, turning it into inventory. Marketing, you know, we call it sneaker net. I was out there knocking on doors and talking to people and going to trade shows. I was lucky that I'd had some sales experience prior and also that I was a trained actor. So I was really familiar with people, you know, saying, no, not interested. You know, that didn't deflate me at all. It's just like, okay, next. I Um, love that coming from that acting background, being used to hearing the word no. So you were not to be deterred. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Actually, in the acting world, sometimes you don't even hear the word no. You go, you audition, you go, you practice, you show up for your audition, you go home and you never hear anything. At least that's how it used to be when I was performing. So, but that was a muscle that I had that was pretty strong because I was used to a lot of no's. So that's why I started a business. My acting business, you know, training wasn't really taking off. So anyway, yeah, I just started and I think I just really loved the idea of being in charge of my own time and being able to work when I could and to be able to structure my day around driving the concept that the concept was supported by a healthy business because I was always gearing and had a goal for profitability because I understood that if you're not profitable, you can't then take resources and put them back into the business and expand the concept and expand the business. So today you're B2B and B2C, business to consumer as well. Mm -hmm. Did you start with B2B or B2C? What came first? What came first was knocking on a bunch of doors in Manhattan (laughs) and saying, hey, you guys, are you interested in this? So I would call that B2B. I had a bunch of retailers on Amsterdam Avenue. And then very quickly, we met up with a distributor at a natural food store and this is before Whole Foods, like 20 years before Whole Foods even. And we got into distribution through them. It was Stone Mills. They became UNFI, which is the largest distributor, just by saying, hey, what do you think of this concept? But at the same time, we were getting some press because of our participation in different Earth Days and different events. So we were also selling direct by mail order. <laughs> you know, I remember going to the post office with, you know, 100 packages that I had put bags into with my mother-in-law and, you know, put the kid in the stroller and stick all the packages in and around the kid and show up at the post office and lick stamps and put them on. So we were running both tracks at that time, but I'd say it was more B2B, but we understood that you have to reach the public. And so I don't really like using the term consumer. So let's just say the buyer or the lifestyle adapter. We knew that those were the people who were going to grow the concept. The B2B people are the people who say, oh, wow, look at what's going on. There's something happening. We need to have that in our store or now on our website. But it's the grassroots people who were really 
pushing this concept forward of the reusable bag and the idea that it's not just about the bag. The concept of a reusable bag is, sure, you go to the store and you don't take a single-use plastic bag. You use a reusable, washable, durable cloth bag. But then you think about all the things you put in your cart and then into your bag because you're thinking about all the packaging on all the things that you're purchasing. And you're looking to reduce all of that. So what would you consider your first big break in those early years, probably in the you know, early 90s? Two. One was to test the concept, which honestly, I didn't even know that phrase when we did it. We did an Earth Day, 1990. It was April. It was on 6th Avenue. My mom and my dad and my husband, we were all you know, at the table. <laughs> you know, wow. Everything had to be done manually, even getting the license to sell on the streets of New York City. And it was an Earth Day and it was packed. And we sold hand over fist for about four hours and completely sold out. And people were coming up to us saying, oh, I've been thinking about this, but I couldn't find any. You know, And I was like, good, we have them. And that's when we started with just the French filet from actually at that point, we we're getting it from Germany, but it was the string bag, which is our iconic signature bag. Yeah. Yeah. And so we sold out on those and we noticed we were right next to a reusable diaper, you know, company brand. And we realized this is going to catch on with a small group of people, but this is a strong, dedicated group of people and they're going to spread the message. So that was one. And then the other thing was when Stone Mills, the distributor, you know, just maybe a year later, not even said, Ooh, that's a good idea. We like that. And they put us into distribution to all of the natural foods stores that they were then serving, because that's who was their primary customer base at that time. And that drove us into the natural product space, which at that time was just really driving sales for organic, fair trade, fair labor, you know, all the things that you now see you find easily on the shelves right. was not happening in 1990, 1991, 19, you know, in the early 90s. That's right. If you said organic, you had to go to some dusty corner in your local store. <laughs> and it generally didn't taste very good from my perspective. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. You have come a long way and the reusable bag industry did seem to catch fire or begin to at least in the early 2000s. So mm-hmm you know, quite a while after you launched, but more and more consumers began to reject and kind of have that same reaction. Here I am at the grocery store or a variety of stores, and they're loading everything I bought into these plastic bags, which when I get home, I'm going to unload and dispose of. And where are those going? Mm -hmm. So there have been more people, more, what I would want to say, peers coming into the market. There's been an increase in their popularity whether it's string bags or the canvas bags that we're seeing. We've even seen fashion designers get in on it with these sought-after fashion totes and messaging. Talk a little bit about how EcoBags has evolved with these changes. So this is a really big topic, and I guess I'll just poke my finger at one place and enter there. Um, Okay, yeah, sorry. I know, it's a very broad question. It's a really big question. Well, we were so excited at first that the public or a larger segment of the public was really embracing this idea of bring your own bag. And then we started to see a lot of imposters sort of jump in on it, which is what you get, right? They go, oh, there's a market. That market's being made. We'll bring in our crappy bags and sell them because they are reusable. 
you know, with no mention of the fact that they're actually made of the same thing that the single-use plastic bags are made of. And I'm talking about the non-woven bag. Mm. So, I mean, what are you solving there? And then, of course, there was the whole run-up, like you said, with, you know, custom printed with designer stuff, this, that, and the other. So with the exception of people pushing what I would consider not great solutions to the whole concept of use less plastic and don't go single use. We were sort of, for better or for worse, we sort of embraced it. You know, we said, hey, we may have been the first out there with a branded concept, you know, reusable bags, but we have a bag and they have a bag. And that just opens up basically that aisle. You know, imagine if you go into a store and there's only one toothpaste type. There's multiples, right? So we decided we could work in this new space. We just had to differentiate who we were and how we were. And with the resources that we had on hand, also noting too, though, that a lot of the larger brands, especially luxury brands, you know, like Anya Himberg, who put out, I'm not a plastic bag bag, you know, right. they, have a, they have a lot of money to reach a much broader segment. But what they do is they then carry the message much further than we could ever carry it. And not everybody can afford a luxury brand bag. Right. But it lights up that part of the brain that says, oh, a bag by its very nature, if it's well-made, is reusable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) You know, you don't take a pocketbook out, you know, a leather pocketbook and say, oh, I used that one time. Poof, throw it away. And except for the 70s when there actually was throwaway clothes for all the listeners who lived through the 70s like I did. You know, the idea wow. of durability and fashion, you know, having a lifeline and all of that. So we were okay with the good part of people entering the market. We weren't okay with the junk, but we realized that the market responds differently at different price points, right? Mm-hmm. And really the message was going out there so much so that we were there when the first plastic bag ban was passed in Modbury, UK. We were there. What I mean by we were there, our products were there when Ireland passed the first plastic bag ban. So we were tracking really carefully what the behavior shifts were and were they detrimental or were they incrementally good? And we saw that people could make this adjustment pretty quickly. The people who couldn't make the adjustment were the people in industry that was trying to guard against any change because it would hit their bottom line. You know, that would be, of course, the right. oil industry. Yeah. yeah. They'll go to great lengths to maintain their profit. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. And, you know, like any industry, there's pros and cons that come with market saturation, right? You know, more mm-hmm. people mean more awareness, but not everyone you know, you had a really impactful line. You said it's not about the bag, but for some people it is about the bag. And, oh, people are spending money on this, so I should get into that. And what you're saying is the bag is part of a bigger issue. It's a solution to one piece of it, but it's not about the bag. And I love that. Yeah. Well, just recently, you know, we just voted, what, two days ago? Yes. And on the ballot, I actually haven't seen whether it was passed or not, was a uh, proposition to ensure that all New Yorkers, because I'm in New York State, have access to clean air and clean water. I mean, the huh. fact that I love that, but the fact that yes. that has to be a proposition that voters agree on. 
I know. <laughs> Why isn't it a human right? <laughs> I believe it is a human right. I do right? But if you talk to companies, corporations like Nestle, or even I think Pepsi, where they take water out of local reservoirs and you know, I don't want to make any false claims, but there's a lot of misuse of public resources, mm-hmm. right? For personal use, not to mention the roads. But anyway, it's big. It's really big. And actually, I just want to say something about all the cheapo bags, too, that a lot of the promotional companies sold, you know, gazillions of. We have many customers who say they break. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to use them. And, and when we're working with businesses, they want to co-brand with us because they know that if they're giving someone a bag, and this is when we get into our custom printed bags, but if they're giving someone a bag, one of their customers or prospective customers, a bag with their name on it or their brand, they don't want it to go in the trash right away. And they don't want it to rip in a week or two. They want it to last. They want their goodwill to go beyond a single use item. And by the way, I've seen it at trade shows and I've documented it. I used to put out videos where people would be given these really cheapo bags. Yeah. And they would take out, you know, the candy bar that was inside or whatever, and they would throw the bag away. Ugh. Yeah. And that's- I was like, that's like marketing dollars just down the drain. Right. It's a waste right. of money, not to mention the cost of the cleanup. And what I mean by that, and we don't have to dig too deep into that, is we all live in, you know, municipalities that have part of our taxes go to sanitation. Right, right. Yeah, and that'll increase. Yeah, well, there, yeah, there is no way. I have another favorite topic that I want to talk about with mm-hmm. you, and that is your book. So you oh. <laughs> wrote a best-selling book called The Magic of Tiny Business. You don't need to go big to make a great living. So Sharon, as you know, I'm a big fan of that book. I have bought handfuls of copies and given it as gifts. And the philosophy is one that I've already shared on this podcast that, you know, to prosper doesn't mean the same thing to every person, nor does it look the same from business to business. So for our listeners who may not have yet read your book, what is the magic of a tiny business? The magic of tiny business is to make a living doing what you feel matters most and to make it in a way with integrity and as much passion as you can put into it, understanding that you really need to grow profit so that you can be attentive to the needs of the business and the mission. And it's on your own time, in your own time frame. So that is very different for everybody, right? But to really say, okay, how do I want to be? How do I want to show up? And how do I not want to show up? And to understand that the mantra of, you know, go big or die, you know, grow, 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 grow. Right. Growth is good. I'm not saying growth is bad, but growth, you know, unharnessed growth (laughs) can be detrimental. Let's just put it that way. And I think a lot of this whole the myth of the entrepreneur that came out of tech, you know, scale, 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 sell. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't build to sell, you know, that might be what you want to do. It doesn't have to be like that. You just have to cast an eye away from those companies to Main Street, you know, or to all the myriad of businesses that support anybody that you see on a Main Street and say, okay, how did they do it? How did they solve for what matters most to them? 
you know, how did they solve for X? And, and I like to say, you can make a great living, but you can also make a big impact. You don't need to touch everybody anymore. You just need to touch the right people. I love that. Yeah, I think that's really, really great. And people can find your book at their local bookstore or Mm -hmm. online as well, as I have found. Yep, It is everywhere. And I highly recommend The Magic of Tiny Business. It's it's just a great book. And you know, it was published by Barrett Barrett Kohler Publishers, who are also a B Corps. Right. And And we're going to talk about next. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because their whole mission is to put out books that can change lives. Love that. You know, we want to change the conversation. We don't want to always go mainstream or we want to build a new mainstream, or maybe we are the mainstream, but we're not getting picked up by the media, you know? Right. (laughs) The stories that are told. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So Mm -hmm. EcoBags is not only a certified B Corp, but a best for the world company. And for our listeners who may not know, B Corps use the power of business to solve social and environmental issues. So they're certified by a nonprofit called B Lab. And so, you know, in the midst of everyone wanting to understand that the businesses they choose to work with care about the same things that they do, what B-Lab has done has really been to create an evaluation that businesses go through to ensure that they do. And it's not an easy process. And so that if you see an organization or a business that has the B Corp logo, you know that not only do they say what they believe, but they're practicing it as well. But then Best for the World is even beyond that. And EcoBags is both. So I just want to hear from you what that means to be a best for the world company and why it's important to you. It's baked into where we started and why we started. When we started, I realized if I'm going to solve this problem, I don't want to create harm in other ways. Like I don't want to build our brand on the backs of other people. So concepts like fair wage, fair trade, using low impact resources and fibers, you know, using less packaging, looking for alternative packaging sources, you know, whatever we can do to reduce our impact, you know, the wrapping on that right now is called sustainability. Back then, I called it just doing the right thing. So we've always done it. And we've always looked to improve wherever and whenever we can, you know, things have evolved a great deal since early 90s. I mean, back then, I couldn't even get recycled paper easily. So As we've evolved with the concept, so have the certifications. And so we have the necessary manufacturing, like organic cotton and recycled standards and blah, blah, blah. But what B Corps does is it certifies our certifications. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, they certify our certification and that is required now because just like when the reusable bag market segment exploded and there were a lot of what I call them imposters in there, there's a lot of brands that throw out their sustainability flag, but are more hot air than actual, you know, than action. I'm always happy that they throw out their flag, but I want to see what are they doing or what are the steps they're taking. And so people who want to purchase from companies who are on that path have to do a little research and B Corps helps to anoint them, if you will, you know, just because of the certification of the certification. I actually think we're moving into a time period where we might need 
a certification of the certification of the certification. <laughs> it's just yeah, going deeper and deeper. That's really interesting. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, and there's been things like the textile exchange and all sorts of things that have grown up that are not even accessible to smaller brands. They only position themselves for larger brands. So it gets complicated. And then a friend of mine works in fashion and she actually works in the world of sustainability. And she said she had major corporate partners come up to her and say, you know, we've been given the task of building out our sustainability, but there's only two of us. And this is, you know, a blah, 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 billion dollar brand. So where are people putting their weight? How seriously are they taking this? And that's what B Corps looks at. I mean, they really, it's rigorous. <laughs> they do it a lot. And not just on the sustainable aspect of production, but on the social aspects as well. Absolutely. You know, because yeah. again, you know, what good would an organic cotton, you know, solidly made, durable for 20 years cotton string bag or tote bag do if it was made by people who were, you know, chained to their sewing machines and couldn't feed their families with the wages they're made? Absolutely. I mean, that's an extreme example, but that. But it you know, happens. All, it's extreme, it happens. but things like that have happened. And when they become public, we all gasp. Mm-hmm. But it's been happening for so long. It's just, you know, the amount of dyes that go into rivers, you know, we wrapped our heads around azo-free dyes probably two decades, three decades ago. You know, you have to look at all this stuff. And I have to be honest with you, even sometimes now we go, oh, we have to change that. Right, right. I mean, we're not immune to it, but we're on the path always to figure it out so that we have less of an impact. Even incremental things, little things like, shifting our inner packs from 10 to 50, Mm. you know, just, and making sure all of our, and not all of our goods are packaged. So we use a lot of just very simple hang tags, but for the goods that are packaged, there's zero plastic widgets. Like even those little baby widgets that, you know, are used to either for a closure or to hang it on a hook. Mm -hmm. That's all, that's all stuff. Right. It is. It doesn't go anywhere. Right. It gets melted, maybe, if someone's got incineration, but that what does that do? You know, so yeah, then it pollutes the air. You just have to look at every single step of it. And also tapes, you know, so you have to really look at every single step of it and dissect it and do what you can so you can stay in business and then move towards doing, you know, less, fewer and fewer harmful things. Right. I love that so much. So Sharon, people certainly can check out all of EcoBags' amazing products on your website at Mm ecobags.com. Where else can they find you or get in touch either with you or with EcoBags? You know, all the information is there. We also have a Shopify site that's just snappier than our website, which is, I believe, store.ecobags.com or shop.ecobags.com. Forgive me if I always forget. I will, um, I will make mm-hmm. sure that we have it right. Okay. And we'll put a link in that in this podcast description. Yeah. And then we're around a lot. I mean, obviously we're in a lot, a lot of retail stores and online on a lot of retail. And if you want to know more about me, I have SharonRow.com. I did that for the book, but there's some really actually great videos about the inception of the business and the why, you know, and connecting that why and understanding the journey that I took and seeing if if someone else would want to take a journey like that. I mean, I can't say it was easy, (laughs) but but I don't think anything's easy, to be honest with you. Nothing is easy. No, it isn't. But when you're pursuing something that matters, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit easier. Well, and there's, I'm a very curious person. 
And I like to be at the beginning of something. And so I think of business as just really problem solving. You're constantly problem solving, whether it's about your cash flow or it's about your production. You're just, or your customer service. You're always problem solving. And for us, it's about providing a brand that opens up and sparks a much larger conversation and moves people to action. I love that. Sharon Rowe of EcoBags, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really great speaking with you. Well, thank you. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Prosper Project. If you want to grow a peerless, profitable brand, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you find value in our show, please help us reach others by sharing an episode and leaving a review. In appreciation, please visit prosperforpurpose.com for more free resources to help you grow your business.